Okay, afternoon everyone. My name is Kamal. I'm the Youth and Young Adults Minister of this church. And so it's my privilege to be bringing us Psalm 106 this afternoon. So if you'd like to open up again to page 598, Psalm 106. Page 598, Psalm 106, let me pray. Thank you, Father God, for your word, the Bible. Thank you for each other. Thanks for a nice building where we can stay dry out of the rain. Thank you for the privilege of singing your praises. Uh, thank you for the privilege of hearing you, you speak through your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you will convict us and speak to us as individuals and as your church family together as we approach you now and we implore you in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Okay, bad habits are hard to change. If we, as, as slides are sometimes as well. Anyway, bad habits are hard to change. And if we're honest, we'll admit that all of us probably have some bad habit that we're kind of embarrassed about, but we just can't seem to kick. It could be eating too much junk food. Uh, it could be drinking too much alcohol, maybe losing our temper. Perhaps certain people in our family or friends, like we just know that they say something and we lose it. Could be procrastination, laziness. That's my problem. I was going to stop procrastinating, but I thought I'll put it off till next week. I was chatting with some of you just over RVOT. I've now got myself into a bit of a spot with my PhD work. I promised my supervisor I'd get him some stuff at the end of the month, and I haven't worked on it yet. Anyway, now you know. I have to start tomorrow. Now, these bad habits, they hold us back from being everything that we could be. We know that. If we eat an unhealthy diet, then we're just not as fit and strong as we could be. If we procrastinate, then we don't do as well at work or school, or university, as we could. But habits are hard to change, precisely because they're habits. Isn't that funny? Just because we're so used to them. It's like we're running down this ditch, and we know we should get out, but we can't, because the walls are too high. It's just easier to stay stuck in the ditch and just keep going in the same direction. And we do that even if we know that some of our habits can be downright deadly. An unhealthy diet can lead to diabetes and blood, high blood cholesterol and heart disease and all kinds of problems. And smoking kills. The packing, packet itself warns us. So far, we've been talking about bad habits that affect us in this life, in this world. Psalm 106 is, tells us about eight deadly habits, eight deadly sins, which affect our life with God. These eight sins at least hold us back from enjoying the full, bountiful, healthy life with God that God intends for us, at least that. And actually, if we don't address them, they'll turn into deadly habits, because what they'll do is they'll suffocate They'll throttle out, smother the life that we enjoy with God. Now, weeks ago when we prepared this holiday series, I hope to cover the whole psalm, but when I was preparing last week, we're only going to look at the first three of the eight deadly sins. There's just so much there. Okay. And I invite you to grab the usual printout of the sermon, and there's the list 
of the other eight deadly sins and I invite you to just chat as a family over dinner or something about the rest because if we did all eight we'll be here until daylight saving switches back I tell you this it's a really good and interesting and deep and rich psalm but for that reason we'll only do the first three but before we actually get into the deadly sins we need to start where the psalm starts because before listing the sins the psalmist admits that he has a problem did you notice that in verse 2, so Psalm 106, verse 2, he asks the question, who can praise the Lord? Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? But then in verses 4 to 6, he basically says, not me and not us. So in verse 4, he says, remember me, O Lord, when you come to show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them. So he acknowledges in the next verse, I can't naturally, normally, I don't have the right to praise God. God needs to rescue me first and then I will have the right to praise him. And in verse 6 he says, we have sinned as our fathers did. We have done wrong, we've acted wickedly. The first step to kicking any bad habit is to admit that we have a problem. But that's difficult. Because it deflates our ego. It's easier to live in denial. I can handle it. Oh, it's not that bad. I only do it occasionally. If we say that, we'll stay stuck in our bad habit. And it'll end up killing us. The whole Christian life is a life of admitting that we're not naturally right with God. That's what the Bible means by confessing our sin. Confession is not some secret, weird ritual that you do in a box to a priest. It's doing what the psalm does right at the beginning. Admitting to God and admitting to people that we are not naturally aligned with God. That we're bad people. That I am a bad person, a wrong person, who does not normally live for God. Now that's difficult because it's de it deflates our ego. It's easier to live in denial. Oh, I'm a good person. I mean, they're only little sins. Why don't you go after the, the bad people with big sins? Besides, everybody's doing it. If we say that, if we live in denial, then we shall remain trapped in that ditch of running away from God. We're going to go through this, the first three of this Psalm's eight deadly sins now. As we hear about them, let's all of us be ready to admit where we have problems. And let's even now, as we sit here, let's think about how we can talk to our families, talk to our growth groups, talk to people whom we trust to address these deadly sins before they get out of control. The first deadly sin is a very Aussie one, whinging, complaining, verses 7 to 12 of the psalm. So basically, these, this section, it talks about God rescuing his people from Egypt. So verse 7, Psalm 106, verse 7, When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Now, in this verse, 
the psalmist is remembering what's uh, um, recorded in Exodus chapter 14. Basically, what happens, in the, as I'm sure many of us are aware, in the book of Exodus, God comes to rescue his people from Egypt. And God did some mighty miracles to punish the Egyptians for not letting Israel go. God turned the Nile into blood. He covered the land with darkness. And finally, he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. But even with all of that, when the Israelites were on the shores of the Red Sea and they saw the Egyptian army chasing after them, they panicked. They thought that God had tricked them. That's the key. They thought that God had brought them out of Egypt not actually to rescue them, but to make them an easier target for the Egyptians to come and slaughter them. But God was patient with their panicking and with their complaints. So verses 8 to 11 talks about how verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea, he dried it up, he led them through the depths, he saved them, verse 10, from the hand of the foe. And then verse 11, the waters covered their adversaries. That's summarizing what happens in the second half of Exodus chapter 14. Basically, it says it exactly like it. it, it God did exactly what it says in the psalm. This is the occasion when the people had the sea in front of them and the army behind them, God rescued them. It wasn't a trick. He took the people through the Red Sea, the farmer's famous parting of the Red Sea. But then as the Egyptians tried to chase after them, God brought the water back and drowned the Egyptians. Then, verse 12, they believed his promises and sang his praise. So verse 12 refers to Exodus chapter 15, which is a, a big psalm of praise that Moses and Miriam sings. Basically, God, they thought that God had tricked them. They thought that God was, had made them an easier target for the, their enemies to slaughter. God rescued them unexpectedly so that they could praise him. Folks, are we in danger of complaining against God when things don't work out the way that we expect them to, when it seems that God isn't giving us the kind of life that we think we deserve. Because I've experienced this, I'm sure you've experienced this, God does not always answer our prayers, even when we know that we're praying for things that are good. And sometimes, being a Christian makes life harder, doesn't make it easier, because we operate by a different value system to the people around us. Now, it's not usually overt hatred, but sometimes we experience a degree of friction with our family or friends or workmates, because when we put our trust in Jesus, that gives us a different set of values, and that means we see things differently and we react differently, and sometimes that can cause a little bit of conflict. At times like that, it's easy for us to act like the Israelites, to think that God has tricked us, that he doesn't actually care about us. He actually hates us. He, he wants to destroy us, make a fool out of us. He wants, he wants us to lose our job. He wants us to lose our friends. He wants us to be the, a, a big cosmic loser that everybody laughs at. Hang in there. Keep trusting God. And trust him to bring some good 
out of that danger and out of those difficulties, just like he did with Israel and just like he did with Jesus. Think about it. If anyone had the right to complain that God had tricked him, it would be Jesus, isn't it? Because he spent his whole life caring for people, healing them, teaching them, showing them God's love and kindness. And what thanks did he get? Well, his friends abandoned him. The legal system failed him. And then he ended up stuck on a cross under the judgment of Almighty God himself. It looked like God had tricked Jesus. It looked like God had abandoned Jesus just when he was the most vulnerable and left Jesus to get slaughtered by his enemies. But at that very moment, through that act, apparently, of cosmic abandonment, God saved the world. It was not a trick. It was God's plan to rescue you and me. If we follow Jesus, we can actually do better than the Israelites. Don't expect, be ready, okay? Don't expect God to rescue you from every hardship. Be ready for hardship, for following Jesus. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. But also, be ready for God to act in unexpected ways, to somehow bring good through that hardship. Expect to eventually, not immediately, but eventually, praise God. Not for the hardship. If you think about it, Jesus didn't thank God for the cross per se. In fact, he said, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, let me not have to go through with this. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, we don't thank God for the hardship. That's what's called masochism, you know, enjoying pain. Don't, don't do that. God doesn't ask us to do that. But we can praise God for the good he brings through hardship. Just like we praise God for rescuing the world through the suffering that Jesus had to endure. So that's the way to avoid the first deadly sin. The sin of whinging and complaining against God when life doesn't go our way. Continue to trust God. Trust him to bring some good through the hardship. And when that happens, get ready to praise him. The second sin is kind of the opposite danger. So we've been talking about what about when life is hard. Well, when life is good, the danger is greed. So in verse 14, coming back to verse 14, Psalm 106 verse 14, it says, In the desert they gave in to their craving. In the wasteland they put God to the test. Now here... This is talking about Numbers chapter 11. So in verses 13 and 14, it's talking about verses 4 to 6 of the book of Numbers. Basically what's happened is the people having been rescued from Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness and God gives them manna, bread from heaven, miraculous bread. But in Numbers 11, 4 to 6, the people say this, Oh, if only we had meat, we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. I mean, good grief. God is miraculously feeding you in the desert. And that's not good enough. Look, I could understand if they were complaining about their vegetables. Like, I'm not big on vegetables myself. But Exodus 16, another verse, 
says the manna tasted like wafers made of honey. God was giving them cake for breakfast, lunch and dinner. They were having dessert in the desert. What were they worried about? But see, in that time of generosity and like goodness, they were greedy for more. Manna isn't good enough. Give us meat. Give us meat. And so in verse 15, Psalm 106 verse 15, God gave them what they asked for but sent a wasting disease on them. And that refers to number 11, uh, Numbers 11, 31 to 35, where God sends quail, so they have meat, yeah, but they get sick. God sends a plague. Folks, when life is good, we can be greedy, just like the people of God. We live in a time of fantastic global wealth and technology, which is actually really good because of the global wealth that the whole world enjoys. More and more people have better and better access to food, clean water, healthy um, uh, health and medicine, and that's all fantastic, but be careful. Those of us who already live in a wealthy country, and that's all of us because we just live here in Australia. It's a bountiful land which is fantastic, blessed by God. For us, this expectation of constant improvement, of always having more, always getting things getting better, that can become greed for us. Because we can end up expecting and demanding the best of everything, or better all the time. The best job, the best house, the best relationships, the best career, the best church, the best music, the best whatever. And when we don't get them, that's when we're in danger of the first deadly sin, whinging and complaining. Not because we're in danger, but because things aren't up to our expectations, because we're greedy for more all of the time. You see how these deadly sins are connected, by the way. And one way that we can fuel our greed, if we're not careful, is through envy, which is the third deadly sin. So verses 16 to 18 of Psalm 106, they're about an incident that happened in Numbers chapter 16. So in verse 16, Psalm 106, 16, in the camp they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron who was consecrated to the Lord. So basically what happens in Numbers chapter 16 is three people, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they basically mount a leadership challenge against Moses and Aaron. And they don't uh, resolve it through the comparatively civil way of a leadership spill, which is what we've had a few weeks ago here in Australia. But God himself resolved it through an earthquake. And in Numbers 16, there's this really quite terrifying account of how the earth opened up and ate, swallowed those who were opposing God's leaders, which is what verses 17 and 18 talk about. So Psalm 106, 17 and 18. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. Now all of this catastrophe happened, as it says here, because of envy. Envy is a subset of greed. Envy is looking at what other people have and saying, I want it. In fact, I deserve it. I deserve it more than that person who already has it. 
it's easy today for us to envy other people because part of the wealth of living today in a globalized world is the way we live in a communication-rich environment. The internet, social media, all of them keep telling us this is what the perfect mother looks like, this is what the perfect job looks like, this is what the perfect body looks like. And look, so internet and social media are not bad things at all. Some of you know I spend a lot of time on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. But it's all this noise that it brings into us, all these wonderful people seeming to have a wonderful, happy life. It can feed our envy. I want that. And we're surrounded by advertising. There's billboards on the motorway. There's billboards on the road as I drive up. There's uh, ads on the buses. You know, bus drives past. You get an ad for the latest iPhone or something. There's ads at the, on TV. There's ads on Facebook. Just last week, so I get this email uh, uh, from Parocash, I think it was, saying, men's spring fashions. I'll tell you, I got so much clothes, I literally don't have enough space. I've had to sort of park some of my shirts at my parents' place because I can't fit them all. Even so, I'm like, ooh, spring fashions at uh, 60% off. Click. What am I doing? Delete. It's just so easy to want what everybody else has, because it's in our face and, as it were, in our ears all the time. Envy robs us of our joy, our ability to enjoy the abundance that we already have. It robs us of our ability to thank God for all the good things, the people, the the satisfaction that we already have. And let me tell you, it even affects those of us who are in ministry. Let me tell you of a time when I caught myself envying a brother minister, okay? So many years ago, I was speaking at a leader's training conference. There were about 30 young people there from university and young university graduates. I was speaking on the book of Deuteronomy. I was leading a small group, training them on how to understand the Old Testament from a Christian perspective. How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament and all that? And we were just having a really good time. I was enjoying it. And then, during the course of that week, I saw on Facebook that a classmate of mine from Bible College, he was also leading at a training conference. Only thing is... His conference was much bigger than mine. He had hundreds of young people, uni age and young graduates, at his training conference. And his was a much more prestigious one. If you want to ask me after, I'll tell you. You would probably have heard of the conference he was at, whereas I was just at one that none of you would have heard about. Okay, I'm not even sure if it still exists. And I'll tell you, I found myself thinking, why does he get to speak at that really big, well-known conference while I'm parked out here at Nowheresville. I helped him with essays while we were at uni. He wouldn't have got the high marks if not for me. I deserve to be where he is. I'm better than him. And, and then I just went, idiot. That's so arrogant, isn't it? That's really pathetic. Get over yourself, bro. I was envying him. In a really tragic way that I'm embarrassed to sort of think about. And 
even if it was just for you know a few seconds, it totally robbed me of the joy that I could have had from the ministry that God had given me. Because I'll tell you, those 30 young people, they were loving every minute that they were having in front of me. And I was enjoying teaching them. And we were getting somewhere. And they were praying loud prayers of thanks to God for me. It was actually kind of flattering, if you know what I mean. What was I worried about? The way to deal with any of these deadly sins is basically to think about and to act the opposite to them. So the opposite to envy is generosity. Greed and envy, they're both about taking, isn't it? Okay, greed is gimme, gimme, I want more, and envy is give me what's yours, I want it. And uh, that's why both greed and envy, they turn us into like black holes, they turn us into like voracious monsters, feed me, feed me all the time, and we're never, never satisfied. We're always hungry. And, and The opposite is generosity, because generosity looks at someone else, and instead of saying, I want it, give me, it says, how can I help you? What do you need? How can I bless you with what I've got? Because I'm more interested in caring for you than looking after myself. I'm more interested in giving what's mine to you than take taking what's yours to be mine. And that's what Jesus did. He gave his life on the cross so that we can enjoy life with God forever. See? Now it's the same kind of thing, this same pattern with all the other five deadly sins. Here's a list and I invite you to take the sermon printout and have a look. Basically, what all of these sections... What each of these sins does, it invites us to have a look at the historical activity of the people of God, Israel. What did they get wrong? And I'll tell you, it's a bit face palmable. Like, come on, guys, you experienced God up close and personal. And still, you could get like materialistic and be obsessed with money and uh, worshipping an idol of made of just copper and gold like that. That's the golden calf, by the way, and that's moo calf, not this kind of calf. And then, okay. But as we do that, as we see how the people of God back then fell into sin, we, can, we need to realize, good grief, we're just like them. We can be trapped by any one of these sins. And sin seven, okay, the angry speech, it's only one verse from Numbers 20. Uh, yeah, Numbers 20. Does anyone know the particular individual who actually does that? Call it out if you do. Yeah, that was Moses. Great Moses who saw God face to face, right? Who God called him personally from the burning bush. And he was the one who prayed before God so that he doesn't wipe out the people at the golden calf. He ran off at the mouth. He lost his temper. And so God, and he proved that he was just a sinner like the rest of them. And that's why he died outside the promised land. God counted him as part of that sinful, rebellious generation. That's not going to physically walk into the promised land. And if great Moses could make a mistake like that, a deadly mistake that keeps him out of the promised land, it's not beyond any of us. And this is why we all need Jesus. 
thinking about our sin, our deadly habits, it's really demoralizing. It's really humiliating. We let God down so much. How could he love a faithless wretch like me? But that's why he gave us Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus stoops down to lift up failures like you and failures like me. And what's more, he gives us his Holy Spirit. When we put our trust in Jesus, then God, by his Holy Spirit, he helps us to genuinely not be trapped in these deadly sins, in these deadly habits. The Holy Spirit works in us to, to make us want to live the opposite to all of this. So instead of being materialistic, the Holy Spirit makes us want to store up treasure in heaven. Instead of being discontent and unhappy with what God's give us, the Holy Spirit makes us want to rejoice in everything God has given to us, and so on and so on. Folks, what I invite you to do, take this list of deadly sins, and over dinner, as a family, talk about each other and how we're all, like, pick one sin, and just how are we in danger of doing this? And then talk as a family, how can we help each other, and pray the Holy Spirit of God, how can we help each other to overcome the deadly sin and do the opposite? Or perhaps those of us who don't have family, like myself included, this is the sort of thing that a growth group is meant to be. A, a growth group is meant to be a bunch of friends, Christian colleagues, where we're close enough to them, and we trust them enough that we can open up to each other like this and say, look, where am I in danger of tolerating sin? Where am I in danger of being malcontent, of running off of the mouth? Who makes me angry enough to sort of shoot my mouth off? And then planning and praying the Holy Spirit that we'll actually do better. Folks, bad habits are hard to change, and Psalm 106 warns us about eight deadly sins. At least they hold us back from enjoying the life with God that God wants for us. And at worst, they can strangle, kill us by strangling our life with God. But come to Jesus. Put your trust in him. And as someone who's put your trust in Jesus, expect the Holy Spirit of God, to turn your life around, little by little, piece by piece. It's not going to happen all at once, and it won't happen perfectly. But expect God's Holy Spirit to shape and change you, little by little, to live for Him and to enjoy the good life, the godly life that He always intended for us. That's a life worth living, isn't it? Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, that you love us enough to warn us about all these deadly sins, these bad attitudes and these tendencies we can get into. We admit that we're in danger of the whole lot of them. Please work through our families, work through our growth groups, Bible studies, work through trusted friends to warn us where are we in danger of living ways opposite to you, especially where are our, our blind spots and we pray, Holy Spirit, please work through your scriptures, work through each other, work through our own personal discipline, that we would turn around, live the opposite to all these negative, toxic ways of living, and bring more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, 
love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. The sorts of things that you rejoice in and things that are good for us and good for everyone around us. And may your blessing, the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may it be with us and our families now and forever. Amen.